If you would take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I was going to sneeze. Allergies acting up? Oh yes. Got to love that. Got to love that wind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, you pull out that black Bible in the chair in front of you and go to page 141. 141. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to read the first seven verses. I'm doing a message about praying for revival this morning. Next Sunday, I'm going to do a message on uh, dealing with conflict in a gospel-centered way. I'm going to take a look at how the gospel intersects with how we deal with conflict with people. And then, three weeks from today, one, two, no wait, two weeks from today, one, two, right? Two Sundays from today, we'll start in in the book of Acts. So we'll and I don't know how long we'll be in the book of Acts. I'll let you know in a couple weeks. But today, praying for revival, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7. I'm going to read. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adultery in the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glorious Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. So why are we doing this, praying for revival? What is this all about? What is the mentality? What are we doing when we do this? Uh, why does revival come? Maybe there's questions that you're going through your mind about revival. And so what I did is I pulled together nine key questions about revival. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to pull some things even from our text and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Nine key questions, key questions about revival. What are, what are some things that we would ask about revival? First of all, what is revival? What is it? We've gone through this before when I preached through this um, in uh, December of last year. The third Sunday of December, fourth Sunday, I preached the revival. And we asked this question as well. What is revival? What does it mean when we're talking about revival? Revival, according to Tim Keller, it is the intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. 
It's not something we manufacture. It's not something we, something we conjure up. Nor is it the extraordinary working of God. It's the intensification of what we know. The intensification of God's normal grace in the gospel. Uh, for example, let's say that once a month somebody comes to Christ. Well, if that's intensified, then it would be five times a week someone comes to Christ. Now, there's no glamorous type stuff, but it's the normal operation of God, but it's intensified. So as an example again, if there's one person coming to Christ a month, let's, for example, then it'd be five people a week. So there's an intensification of God's working amongst us. That's what revival is. And by the way, if, if I go too fast uh, with these questions, feel free to ask me for my notes. I can send them to you. I can print them off. I can email them to you. No problem. The intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. That's what revival is. That's what we mean by that. So what, what, are, we, what are we asking God to do then? An intensification of His normal operations. So what are we asking Him to do? This. God would move in this church, in this city, in Jerome. A ministry has been happening there. In the Verde Valley. Our state, our country, our world. So it goes like that. So that we will see our own joy and praise renewed. Sleepy Christians would wake up. Nominal Christians repent and trust in Christ. And non-Christians will be saved as well. That's what we're asking God to do. That God would move amongst us here first. And then it would come out to Cottonwood, Jerome, the Verde Valley, in our state, in Arizona, in the country, throughout the world even. God would move. And then what happened is our own joy and praise would be renewed. We'll see sleepy Christians actually wake up and nominal Christians, who are not real Christians at all, they'll actually come to Christ. And pagans, flat out rejecting the gospel, they respond as well. Third question. Why do we pray for revival? Why? What's the purpose? According to our passage, because the evil one blinds people to the truth of the gospel, so they may not see the glorious sun. That's what Paul says in verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glorious Christ. People won't see Him. They're blind to Him. They're blind to understanding of that. They're blind to the truth. And the sad part, that can even happen amongst Christians. We're not listening. We need God to open our minds to understand His truth. That's why we pray for revival. Fourth question, what conditions make, may make revival favorable? What conditions may make revival favorable? Leon Scrump said this, A revival movement and the prayer that necessitates it is undeniably catalyzed by pressure or persecution. 
or brokenness or a collapse, uh, a tragedy. For instance, right before the Second Great Awakening, you had this thing that happened in our history. You might be familiar with it. It's called the Revolutionary War. Okay, that was a joke. Nobody got that. When comparing the Revolutionary War, 1775 to 1783, 1775 to 1783, when you compare the Revolutionary War to the population of the colonies, the war was at least the second deadliest conflict in American history, ranking ahead of World War II and behind only the Civil War. There were major sufferings brought about by the Revolutionary War, especially with disease. Many parts of the country were ravaged by the Revolutionary War. People were ripe for revival. There was such devastation. They were ravaged. They were broken. As one writer says this, <clears throat> he says there was, quote, dark times, low conditions, a falling off. And the Second Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening happened in the 1740s. The Second Great Awakening lasted for 25, 30, sometimes people say even longer than that. So what may make revival favorable? In short, it will take a collapse of some sort. Maybe it will be an economic collapse. Maybe there will be a social collapse. Maybe there will be a, a, a collapse of military. Whatever it is, people will see the futility of this life and be broken. Maybe there will be a, uh, some tragedy, major tra tragedy like, like Katrina. Hurricane Katrina. Maybe it will be something like that. But as Leon Crump said, it's undeniably catalyzed by pressure. Another question. What special means were used to promote these revivals? The First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival, which happened toward the turn of the 20th century. None. Nothing. Nada. For all my Spanish speakers. <laughs> Nothing. I told you about this book last time. Revival and Revivalism, The Making and Marring of American Evangelicalism. Ian Murray says this. The spiritual leaders, they were united in the belief that God has appointed the means of prayer and preaching for the spread of the gospel and that these are the great means in the use of which he requires the churches to be faithful. There are no greater means which may be employed at special times to secure supposedly greater results. It's therefore the Spirit of God who makes the same means more effective at some seasons than at others. There's nothing you can do that can manufacture revival. It's just the simple process of prayer and preaching. Praying and proclaiming God's Word. That's it. He says this, but in the case of the Second Great Awakening, 
nearly all the preacher's prominence at the outset had already been laboring for many years. A considerable body of men for a long period before the Second Great Awakening preached the same message as they did during the revival, but with vastly different consequences. The same men, the same actions, performed with the same abilities, yet the results were so amazingly different. There's nothing you can do that can manufacture this. You can't conjure it up. He says later on, Thus what characterizes a revival is not the employment of unusual or special means, but rather the extraordinary degree of blessing attending the normal means of grace, intensifying the normal things. There were no unusual evangelistic meetings, no special arrangements, no announcements of pending revivals. Pastors were simply continuing in the services that they conducted for many years when the great change began. So, it's simply God's Word and prayer. So we're not going to have some evangelistic meetings for a week. We're not going to do that. Or, or as a uh, uh, Rick Danielson was saying that excuse me, there was a church they had revival meetings for a week they said revival meetings all week except for Tuesday so you can't have revival on Tuesday but you can have revival the rest of the week God doesn't work that way it doesn't happen like that we're not going to have some special type meeting special type things it's not going to take place it's just a simple process of God's word and prayer listen to what prayer Emory says this, On the subject of means, something needs to be said more particularly on prayer. As with the truth that is preached, prayer has no inherent power in itself. So if you pray, that's, there's no power in, in you praying. I mean, it's not, it doesn't conjure up something. And so with preaching, it has to be God's Spirit working. On the contrary, true prayer is bound up with a persuasion of our inability and our complete dependence on God. Prayer, considered as a human activity, whether offered by few or many, can guarantee no results. But prayer, that throws believers in heartfelt need of God, with true concern for the salvation of sinners, will not go unanswered. Prayer of this kind precedes blessing not because of any necessary cause and effect, but because such prayer secures an acknowledgement of the true author of the blessing. And where such a spirit of prayer exists, it is a sign that God is already intervening to advance His cause. So see, friends, we just throw ourselves upon God and we plead with Him and ask Him. And we realize we, we, we depend upon Him totally, and we realize there's no, absolutely no way that you, when you speak to someone about the gospel, your neighbor, your relative, your friend, your co-worker, somebody there in Jerome or just down the street from you, there's no, absolutely no way they will respond to Christ unless God works in them, right? There's no way. It doesn't mean we don't stop speaking. It doesn't mean we don't stop giving them the gospel. But we speak 
there must be a growing concern among us as Christians to pray. That, that we see our desperate need for God. And that desperate need should turn us back to God's enduring, sufficient Word. His truth. Question number six. How did it affect Christians in the church at that time? The second great awakening. How did it affect Christians? It says this. Every true revival begins in the church. And a proof of the genuineness of the work is that it does not leave believers where they were before. They are filled with new wonder, joy, and praise with a new sense of the privilege of serving God and with renewed energy that comes from being constrained by the love of Christ. What Christians had thought impossible in former years was now attempted with a faith and sacrificial abandon that was to, the, to astonish the world. So there's a deeper praising of God, a deeper joy in God, a deeper sense of the privilege of serving God, ministering to others. We relish in the gospel. I'm forgiven in Christ. Isn't this amazing? There's such joy that comes over us. There's such, there's such delight that comes. There's such pleasure that comes when we remember the gospel. And that just pours out towards others. That's how it affects us. And it actually begins with us. It begins here. With you. With me. With us. That's how it affected Christians in the church at that time. And that's how it continues to affect the church today. Well, what did these revivals look like? What did they look like? A final general observation, says Murray, arising out of this period has to do with the manner in which the unusual sense of the presence of God was recognized in the churches which experienced these revivals. It was not because men saw weeping multitudes, unrestrained noise, and high excitement that they believed a revival had begun. On the contrary, such things, which are sometimes supposed to be of the essence of revival. Such things were almost entirely absent in the Northeast during the greater part of the Second Great Awakening. Far from aiming at stirring excitement, the preachers sought to avoid it. The whole tendency of things was to produce exercises of the calm, solemn, pungent kind rather than passionate and glamorous excitement. He says later, as we have seen, it was when these pastors were continuing in their... Oh, thank you. Do I sound that bad? Yeah. Dad, you stink. Sorry. Ooh, that's nice. Thank you. <clears throat> as we've seen it, it was when these pastors were continuing in their normal preaching ministries that revivals began and the first appearance of change was commonly the mysterious influence like the silent dew of heaven which took from men's minds all save the truth that they were hearing. Congregations were then awed and subdued and it was often the degree of silence and stillness more than anything else 
which showed that a new day had come. See, we think about revival with <laughs> right, people lifting their hands or jumping around. They're doing laps in the church building. Go, 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 Lord, go, Lord. Yeah, yeah. Pick him up, he fell down. Go, go. That's what we think is, is revival. Not so in the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening in the Northeast. It was silence. Dr. Noah Porter, describing the revival at Farmington, Connecticut, he wrote, quote, The state of feeling which at this time pervaded the town was interesting beyond description. There was no commotion, but a stillness. In our very streets, a serenity in the aspect of the pious, a solemnity apparent in almost all, which forcibly impressed us with the conviction that in very deed, God was in this place. What do these revivals look like? Overall, in general? Silence. Stillness. A solemn sense that God certainly was in this place. An eager attention to God's word. Rational. Deep. Stillness. And not to to offend our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them. But what happens is their emotionalism gets in the way. And you miss the fact of the stillness and the solemn presence of God. Which leads to the next question. What do these revivals look like? There was silence and stillness. And that's why this next question is important. What do we need to be careful of in these revivals? Unfortunately, revivals in the past collapsed because of a lack of theological depth and training. They collapsed because there's no theological depth. It was shallow. And then what happened is people began to focus upon the phenomena. That's why we must, if revival does break out, we must use revival to teach people the Bible and to bring them back to the gospel. And not get distracted by the phenomena that, that may sometimes be associated with revival. Sometimes it is. That's why Jonathan Edwards, in the first Great Awakening, in the 1740s, he wrote about the religious affections. He wrote about the, this phenomena that was taking place. There's was, there was people weeping and crying and wailing. And, and he defended that because that is sometimes associated with revival. But we automatically think that's revival. Not necessarily. We must not get distracted by that phenomena. Because then it could collapse. We must take advantage and teach people using revival to teach people the Bible and what the scriptures say and focusing upon Christ and the cross and the gospel and forgiveness in His name. That's why last time in December, remember when we went through Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9, I didn't expositionally work through that, but I gave you principles that came out from that. Um, reading, preaching, exposition of God's truth, His word, a larger sense of the awesomeness of God, a larger sense of our rebellion against God. 
conviction, confession of sin with brokenness, prayer which remembers, prayer which remembers the gospel, God's grace to us, and then there's assurance in God and in His promises. Those things must be encapsulated and must be pushed and even, even uh, taught when there's revival taking place, when revival breaks out. We must do that. We must show people that preaching of God's word is important. A greater sense of His holiness and a greater awareness of my sin and a greater awareness of the cross, it must loom larger. And there must be conviction and confession and then such assurance in God and in His promises. It's teaching people God's word. So we must be careful of that. Which leads to a question number nine. What's our central message in a revival? Really, what's our central message in anything? We proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord. Right there in verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. In verse 2, Paul says, We've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness. We don't adulterate the word of God, he says. But we manifest the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We manifest truth. And when we preach Christ as Lord, that's what we man- well, how do you manifest truth? We preach Christ as Lord. That's what we do. Jesus Christ is Lord. We're manifesting the truth of who Jesus is. We manifest the truth of the holiness of God. We manifest the truth that we are rebellious sinners and we deserve His judgment. We should be condemned. We manifest the truth that God is a forgiving and gracious and merciful and kind God who sent Jesus, God the Son, who took on flesh, lived a perfect life, righteous, righteous, was crucified on the cross as a substitute for sinners, all of the sin was placed upon Him. God's wrath was poured out upon Him for all those that repent and turn away. Repent, turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus alone. And God rose, brought Him back to life. He resurrected from the dead. And now He is King. He's Lord of all. Come and trust in Jesus. That's what we manifest. That's what we display to people. That's the Gospel. Last time, we did a message. I did a message on revival. We all prayed out loud together for God to bring revival to us. This time, I believe it would be most prudent for us to have silence. That we would pray together in quiet solitude for God to work. And I don't know how long. We'll just kind of just, I don't know, we'll play it by ear. But what I want us to do is that there will be silence. There will be quiet. There will be stillness. If you've got to get up and go to the bathroom, please do that. You know, get up go to the bathroom, whatever. Got to get up. You know, something's happened. That's fine. That's okay. But let's have a stillness. Let's be solemn. And let's quietly, in our hearts, in our spirits, pray for God to bring revival to us. And maybe as you're praying, pray for that neighbor that you know who doesn't know Christ. The friend, the, the, the relative, for people in Jerome we've been ministering to there. 
And what I'm, I'm going to put this up here on the screen for you. This is what we're praying for. God will move in this church, this city, in Jerome, Verde Valley, our state, country, our world, so that we will see our own joy and praise renewed. Sleepy Christians wake up. Nominal Christians repent and trust Jesus and non-Christians be saved too. So leave that on the screen. We can leave that up there, Tyler, if we can. And we'll just have some silence. And we'll just be still a few moments. And then, and then after whatever amount of time, we'll do our time of giving and our last two songs and our closing prayer like we normally do. Okay? So let's have silence. Pray for God to bring revival.